Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. Hey, Fem South listeners, welcome back to the Fem South podcast. I'm your host, Lee. It's been a little while since we put out a new podcast. We were working on our next episode, which was based on feminist utopian fiction, when George Floyd was brutally murdered and all the other killings and police brutality incidents were coming forward in the media. When this happened, I basically stopped editing and reached out to my friends and FemSouth members to offer our platform so that they could voice their feelings and opinions about this and to open a dialogue about racism in the United States and within our own community. Because of the pandemic and being in quarantine, it took us a little while to get together, but actually this turned out to be a really good thing because the space allowed us to process what was happening in the world and reflect on what we were seeing in the media and in our own communities. And as a result, I feel like we had a really good open conversation. This interview is not based on a book that we were reading in the book club. Instead, it's a conversation that I'm having with my friends who are also black women in the community. So without further ado, I'm happy to welcome back. Valencia Wilson and Clarice Hall Black. Valencia and Clarice were on a previous podcast that was the second part to Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider. And then I'm also happy to introduce you to a new guest, Winter Dacus. And I just want to say a few things about my guest. Clarice is an educator. She is a fourth grade teacher's aide at Bayshore Christian Academy. Uh, she has 20 years experience in logistics in the U.S. Air Force. She's currently retired. Uh, she's also the president of the Twin Beach Community Cemetery Association and on the City of Fairhope Planning Commission Board. Valencia has her bachelor's degree in environmental design, which is the study of the built environment. And she's interned for several companies in the local area. Um, she's from Alabama, but she's currently living in D.C. Winter has her bachelor's degree in occupational safety and health and a bachelor in business administration. And she just graduated with her master's in organizational leadership. So we have some smart ladies here. This is another Zoom recording, so the audio quality will not be as good as it normally is. Uh, but we hope that you bear with us and enjoy. Let's get started. So thank you, Winter, Valencia, and Clarice for joining me. I'm so happy that you're here. I'm happy to be here too. My name is Winter. Thanks for having me. I'm Clarice. It's nice to be here. My name is Valencia. 
Okay, so it's been a few weeks since the killing of George Floyd. And I think that we, because it's been a few weeks, we've actually had a little bit more time to really sit with what's happened and to really process everything that's been happening. And so I guess I kind of want to start with maybe just asking each one of you, like, how are you feeling? How has this impacted your life now? For me, winter. I think that the plus side is he essentially was martyred, you know, for something that's been happening since we were brought here against our will, basically. And I've done my own research behind the police and the role that the police play as it relates to how he was killed. And I have not allowed myself to get caught up in hate. I have allowed myself to still support good cops and just make sure that the bad ones are being addressed for their crimes. And I think that's important. It's important to not lose sight of the fact that our world would be in chaos without the police, regardless to the bad ones, you know? So for me, it's it, at first it was very scary. I was very sad because all this stuff came to the surface. I went to some protests and because I went to those protests and I posted those protests on my social media, I was put in a situation where I had to address two trolls. One troll was, it turns out her issue had nothing to do with Black Lives Matter. (laughs) And then the other person, we ended up exchanging phone numbers and we had a conversation and she removed her post from my wall. So dialogue is what I've learned helps because all I can do is address one heart at a time. I'm not in this to try to change everyone's opinion does change those opinions who want to understand where we as black people are coming from so that's how I feel um I'm feeling good I am I mean honestly since everything's been happening it's been shock after shock and you know story coming out of story but I've just come to a realization that I can only focus on myself like there's really nothing I mean I can I can't get distracted by all the negativity in the world so I've I've been really good so I didn't really jump on the bandwagon at first and I just kind of listened to people kind of give their opinions on what happened because I have sympathy and empathy for the situation the families and everything that's happened but I don't live in a place where I can truly relate to what was going on, like that, that degree of police brutality. So it made me kind of have the ability to be able to step back and just kind of watch as others did. Um, I didn't agree with the looting and all of that type stuff, peaceful protests, uh, and having a, a purpose, a true purpose is what I was really, I'd say more so looking for. Um, justice for George Floyd, looking for that also. But as far as me, I've I've tried not to watch TV, utilize a lot of social media because you can get wrapped up in so much that's out there, fake news, this, that, and the other. And eventually it will mess with your psyche until the point that you do not know what's real and what's fake. And I just mm-hmm. did not want to be um, in that situation where, um, as you say, going down the rabbit hole of you know, of just different things. So I try Mm -hmm. to just keep my mental life 
a little bit more stable than the situations that were going on around us. I have to agree with you, Clarice. We don't experience that here. You know, at least us as women, we don't. I know, and even my nephew, you know, I, I can safely say that, you know, he has gotten into, he has interacted with the police a lot because he's a horrible driver. <laughs> so, and he has had some amazing experiences. I mean, where they have, you know, if I'm being transparent, he's a teen, he's a 19, 18 year old. They, you know, marijuana, a lot of people smoke marijuana or whatever. And he, they found it on him and they have basically dispersed half, threw away half of it or more than half to make sure he was only getting a misdemeanor for it. That's happened twice. And then he, he was in Wilcox County. I mean, like it was areas where you would assume the worst. And he has been taken care of by police officers, white police officers, you know, and even my brother. Oh, my gosh, my brother. He has had police call my mama to come get him. I've been pulled over. The police is calling, talk to my mama. I'm grown. And they'll talk to my mama to verify stuff. I tell them. Mm -hmm. So I have not experienced it. So you're right, Clarice. We've not experienced that. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely have to agree with you. I also have to agree with you that we can't get caught up in fake news. You can't get caught up in conspiracy theories. All of that is just a bunch of stuff that's just only meant to create a divide. So I 100% agree. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. I do feel that too when I drive I've been pulled that's why I moved to DC so I wouldn't have to drive anymore <laughs> but I got fooled over a lot back in Alabama too and I only had one mean cop to be honest with you I've only I've only had like one but it's not like he put his hands on me or anything but it it wasn't a good experience I just feel like it just really depends on your your luck is whatever whoever pulls you over you could have someone really nice Mm -hmm. Or you could have someone really mean. And some I've realized, um, I read that article, uh, Confections of a Former Bastard Cop. And from what I see, it's just like some some cops have just an ego trip because, I mean, you're walking around with all of this power. So it's just like, hey, I can literally do and say whatever I want. And it seems like sometimes they want to do that. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't do that at all or they're just not that type of cop and seems like sometimes that's all they do. Yeah, I read that article that you shared with us. Can you say the name of that article again, Valencia, and maybe the author of that yeah. article? Do you have it with you? So the name of the article is Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop and it's Officer A. Cab. But you know what? I don't think that he actually gave his, you know. His real name? Yeah. Uh -uh, because it's just like some of the stuff that he said it, it was I mean that's why I couldn't finish it well it was it was really interesting because he brought up all the sort of negative behaviors with the cops but he also like brought up the problems with their training and how they screen cops and so there seems to be a controversy now over like whether to dismantle the police force uh whether to actually really fix the problems but that article that you shared valencia he's the writer sort of said that it's really hard to fix because it's so protected within yes. the police force all these issues are so protected because because they're all in it together basically you know, they say the hiring is down by like 60%. Police hiring is really down like by 60. So they can't even hardly find people to fit those jobs to even want to be cops anymore because of everything that's going on right now that has been going on. But yeah. So um, with the black versus white crime, like police brutality and all of that, 
So on the confessions of a former bastard cop, I read some of the paragraphs and stuff within it. And so the, the cop was basically saying that you have to break the power. Well, you have to try to break the power of the police unions and make it impossible for the bad cops because it's all like an incentive type thing. And um, he said, a police union is not a labor union. Police are powerful state agents, not exploited workers. So when he broke it down like that, like most unions are to help the labor force, but this isn't what the union is for when it comes to these cops. And he also said, he had a thing on there where he was speaking about um, like doctors have to have malpractice insurance. He said that police should have malpractice insurance. So if they make a wrong decision when they go out, for instance, like for George Floyd or for anything, they can get sued for that. And eventually, once it starts hitting their pockets enough, then they'll come to the realization that I might need to change the way that I think. Because you look at a doctor, if they go into surgery, they have methodically thought out the way that this surgery should go and what the next step is in case this happens. But with cops, they just, they go to work and they just do whatever and that's it, you know, and they just wait for the, the, the consequences and repercussions to come down later. They don't, it's like they care, but I don't think to that great of an extent that they care. But, um, but my husband gave an example of this basketball player and he was saying that while all the rioting and stuff was going on, this basketball player was like, oh, let me film this. I just beat up this white boy. You know, he was trying to break into my car and was just giving this whole description of what was going on. And he wanted to put it out there on social media before anybody else did. And so my husband was like, in order for people to see eye to eye, you know, you have to look at it from my perspective, being a white male. Now, if I went and videotaped myself beating up a black kid that was breaking into my car, the same situation, you know, everything happened the same exact way. He was like, I will be deemed as being a racist, you know, for beating up this African-American kid for something that's literally the same exact situation. And he was like, and that's where it's kind of like until people see from the same perspective, the same scenario that's going on, you know, we have a long ways to go. Um, I see where he's coming from, but we were talking about the cops and I wanted to say that in that article, it said, I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six. So I feel like that's just how a lot of people live their lives. And that's probably how the basketball player lived his life. So instead of going into the situation with um, empathy or just like talking to that person, he decided to use violence. So I think that just that goes hand in hand with a lot of people. And I remember I was, um, going to work one morning and I was late, but they, up here in DC, there's a lot of kids like 10 and 12 and 11 just running around with their groups of friends, going to school and stuff. They're usually not supervised. And I was in the Metro and a, a group of these little black boys passed the cop and they put their little hands up. And um, the cop was just like, uh, keep putting your hands up and I will give you something to put your hands up about. And he said this to children and I was shook. I was just out because I was standing there right in between it. And I was just like, are you talking to eight year olds like that? How disrespectful. But I also feel like it, I could have been mature enough at that time to either say something to the cop one because I'm an adult and we're in a crowded area. It's not like you're going to just flip out on me. 
or two, just get his name and his badge number and report that because that's not the way that he should have came at the situation. Yeah, I feel like you should have said something (laughs) because I find that we as African-Americans or Black people, we suppress and walk away from a lot of situations that we could actually correct right then, right there, and we don't. And then it ends up hindering us down the line because we don't correct those issues. And it happens in probably every race, you know, but it's, I mean, it's like I said before, um, I use the this saying, I'm going to stay in my lane. You know, we've stayed in our lanes so mm-hmm. long that all this stuff is happening around us and but we what if, allowed it to happen. But what if Valencia would have been dealing with a cop who would have pulled his gun on her and shot her? She could have very well, well been in the same situation well, where he could have justified killing you just by you saying know. something to but him. But if you're not being, I feel like if you're not being um, irate, aggressive, you know, but you're like, hey, those are kids and you don't talk to them like that. You are an officer of the law, you know, and I want your badge number and I want your information and, you know, just leave it like that. But if you shot me in broad daylight because I said that, no, you've got some balls, you know, yeah. I don't see it happening, but that could be my na- me being naive coming from Fairhope, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> or the police officers will kindly We're say you're right ma'am I mean, you know, you're in DC. I mean and we you have to look at the bigger picture she's in dc so That's if the cop said, even yeah. yeah even if the cop said that to those eight-year-olds he had no sympathy he had no empathy yeah. he had no compassion yeah. so valicia yeah. what a little what you at five one a hundred pounds <laughs> yeah i'm, I'm, I'm five four three me. <laughs> And, yes. But you know, but I want to kind of go back to what Clarice was saying about what her husband said. First of all, I 100% agree with your husband. I do not think that we should manipulate or exploit the situation we're in currently because that's still bad. Right. You know, it still means that we're doing evil against evil and that's not going to resolve what's going on in our world. I mean, that basketball player was wrong, mm-hmm. period. So I agree with you, Clarice, that your husband's right. You can't do wrong for wrong, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. Valencia, I I get why you didn't say anything. I think you should have been able to say something. So I support Clarice in that fact. But I think that you would have been better off just maybe getting his information and reporting the situation. Because addressing him directly, I just don't know if if I would feel comfortable knowing that that I supported you doing that. So true enough, no, we shouldn't just take a do a blind eye. We shouldn't just like let this stuff keep happening. But we do have to like figure out a way to address it because there's more than one way to skin a cat, you know. <laughs> so I'm done. Yeah, I completely understand that. But you know, I feel like a lot of people don't say anything from shock. You know, I'm yeah. already yeah. I'm late yeah. to work. Yeah. That I could have said something to him at that point because I'm in the metro. There's hundreds and hundreds of other people. I work at a, a massive company, like right on the corner. There's people in that metro that know me. We all work together. So I could have said something. I'm pretty sure he would have had to be in a sane asylum to pull a gun out and shoot me (laughs) at that point but I was just so shocked you know that like I'm late to work and then you over here yelling and I'm caught in the middle and I'm the same height as these kids (laughs) so you know but I feel like just having more interactions like that I've known like my place and when to step up and when not to and you know I also think that I don't give myself flack for not stepping up because I'm young 
you know, I, at the time I wasn't even uh, near my 25th birthday. So I'm just sitting here like watching this, just ingesting this and trying to figure out what can I do if I ever see this happening again? Valencia, I think that's a great point. What do you do when you're in shock? Like, I feel like we need some kind of preemptive training so that when we do experience this kind of stuff, like whether it be with perfect strangers and we're shocked or like our own family members and we're shocked, how can we stand up for ourselves against these kinds of injustices that we see? Like for me, I'm very introverted. It is so hard. I, and I avoid (laughs) conflict at all costs. Like it is so hard for me to stand up for myself or stand up for somebody else. If I see something happening training would be so beneficial like how we have martial arts training and self-defense training like we need how to stand up to bullies Bullies. and racist and yeah and cops and sexist yeah because I do the same thing with sexist men I sometimes am shocked by the comments that they say and if I don't feel particularly confident I I won't say anything and I'll just go back and think oh I should have said this but I didn't I missed that opportunity I have to say, I'm embarrassed to admit that I've been sexually harassed on every job I've ever had, and I've never addressed it. Ooh, me too. Never. <laughs> and so I've definitely, I, you know, and I mean, when I say sexual harassment, I'm talking about grabbing booties. I'm talking about like, so yeah, maybe I'll get bold enough to slap somebody next time. <laughs> and there's like a real threat there when it's an institution. Like I've been sexually harassed in the military so many times, but it's such a big institution. When you are facing the police force, that's a huge institution mm-hmm. to like yeah, come up is. against. And there's a whole force behind that, that I, it's, it's, it's very challenging. But it, it's with the military, it's changed so much now. I mean, there's so much training you have to go through for that. And you can actually lose stripes, lose your career. Over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's changed a lot with, I'd say within the last maybe 10 years, my last 10 years, you know, it, it's progressed up until until like I retired people were getting hemmed up like generals you know um Mm -hmm. high-ranking officials lost their their pensions and stuff like that because of things that Mm -hmm. they had done over the course of their career and the girls band together and they came out Mm -hmm. and said what was going on so it's changed tremendously and I think um maybe that's why I feel I um approach things differently because of the training, um, my mental mind thought is not to go into panic. It's to assess the situation and do what you need to do. It's like um, fight or flight. And so when things happen, you know, you have to look at it, I feel like from the perspective of if that was my child, if that was my niece or, you know, um, would I want yeah. that to happen to them? And so I know that when you address a situation, it's how you present yourself. Sometimes it's not, but it's how you come across to that person. And I think that has a lot to do with it. If you come off as being ghetto, you know, flailing your arms around, <laughs> you might get knocked out, you know. <laughs> but if I'm in front of you, not in your face, but we're talking just as I'm talking right now, there's no need for you to feel threatened by me. It's you're threatened by this, the fact that you were caught in a situation. But I think with the different trainings that I've had, maybe that's why I've feel so passionately about things like, like that and how to address, you know, address it, especially when it comes to the youth, because they don't, some of them don't have that guidance and you're there, that last line of defense for them, you know? 
Yeah. yeah that's a good point. I totally have to agree. I've seen videos of when like police brutality has happened with women specifically. And a lot of times these women are getting in police's face. You know, they are putting themselves in danger. And the reality is, is that when we're dealing with situations that could turn ugly, it's just best for us to keep a distance, keep our tone calm and professional when you're dealing with these people. Because I don't want to put myself in a range where anybody could hurt me. I don't want to get hurt if I can avoid it, you know. Um, so I have to, I definitely agree with you, Clarice. I do think it's about how you come at them. And it's, and it's unfair that they can be abrupt and ignorant and crazy, but we don't have that luxury. And the sooner you accept that, the more likely you are to walk away from those type of confrontations, mm-hmm. you know. But, you know, um, this is going back to like the sexual harassment and defending yourself and defending others. I was talking to this recently to some friends and it's just what age do you learn how to properly defend yourself and other people? And is it something that you learn or is something that you are taught? How do, how does that work? And I, I've learned how to defend myself, but other people and in certain situations like the train incident is, not as much of a reaction if it's like verbally. I mean, if I'm like saving a baby or a child or somebody's falling or something, you know, I'll, you jump automatically to react, but you don't have the same reaction verbally most of the time and especially in a calming manner. So and I, I was taught how to defend myself, especially like against sexual harassment, specifically just recently when I was working at um, that company, I'm not going to say the company, but I was in a situation where I went out with some co-workers and, you know, they were a little handsy and, but later on they were throwing a Christmas party and they wanted me to come. And I, I'm not going to put myself in that situation where somebody else has too many drinks and you put your hands on me again. So since that day, since that point, I've always defended myself when sexual harassment has come in, you don't put your hands on me and you don't talk to me any type of ways. So, I mean, maybe it looked bad in the company's eye or, you know, I told them the purpose is not because of me drinking. It's because I feel uncomfortable around people drinking alcohol that don't know how to handle themselves. And they still didn't understand. They still pressured me about going. But at the end of the day, this is my life. This is my life. Oh, well, you did right. You took a stand for yourself. Yeah. And that's awesome. Yeah, because I that's what happened. I went to a Christmas party and uh, like a big manager, he came up behind me and grabbed my butt. I don't know what that is. That's just so weird. It is weird. And it's just <laughs> so like, weird. we got the coronavirus out here. Don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> Six feet. <laughs> you know what? I've noticed too from working, like when I worked at the restaurant, if somebody that regularly came in did that to me or any other cashiers, we'd communicate. It's just like, you know, this one's kind of creepy. Can you check them <laughs> out? Like it was just, but you know what? I also realized that I was privileged to mostly spend my life working with women and women of small business owners. So when I go out here in the corporate and these streets, it's like they would not allow anyone to treat me like that. You know, they've all of them have come to my defense on so many levels. But going out here, I'm just like, oh, it's not like that, you know, and I I really do miss working with women, small business owners, women in particular. 
So in order to move into another discussion point, I wanted to come back to something that you said in your introduction, Clarice, that you didn't want to jump on the bandwagon. And we've been talking in private about the Black Lives Matter movement and how people are responding, whether or not people and, or corporations have integrity in this movement. What are your mm. thoughts on that? Um, so I'll go back to being in the military for 20 years and we had our motto was integrity first, service before self and excellence in all we do. And so I basically live by that and I had to live by it for 20 years and I continue. It's just ingrained in me now to do that. And um, I feel like a lot of the companies are, they're all jumping on the bandwagon. Don't get me wrong. It's just once you're on the bandwagon, what are you doing? Are you doing it for, for financial gain? Are you doing just enough so that your financial gain rises? Or is it to truly make a difference? I feel like if you look at the numbers for any corporation to see from the top down to the lowest paid person, how many um, Blacks, whites, other you know um, ethnicities work within that establishment, and you really look at the numbers, is what you're doing going to help your your company? You know, because if you have a company of 500 employees, but only 100 of them are black, and they're all minimum wage workers, mm. being on this whole Black Lives Movement doesn't really, you know, I, I'm not going for it. You know, so I kind of look at the diversity, the diversity part of um, of the integrity. You know, that's within some of these companies. And who is it? Um, the NFL. You know, they didn't want to, the guy calling Kaepernick. No one wanted to knee down, you know, blah, blah, blah with the national anthem. This whole situation that's going on, it's one of those situations where it's like, oh, now you're taking it seriously. You know, now you want to um, get on the bandwagon, which it wasn't a bandwagon at the time. It was actually him making a stance for what he believed in. But now you all of a sudden, you you see the light. I think that a lot of businesses have used this as a way to just make sure they're on the right side of it. I know that I've been paying attention to like when they rioted in um, Minneapolis and they tore up a Target. The Target actually did a, did a press conference and they basically, all they had to do was they all they did was say positive stuff about it. They said, we understand the struggle. We understand the hardship. We understand the anger. We understand why this happened. And we here, we are still here to to stand to stand with those who are feeling like they have an injustice and being mistreated, Black people specifically, or people of color. And so Target came out with a press conference completely like forgiving what happened, you know, because they said they understood. And honestly, Target is like one of the only businesses that have actually taken Black-owned products and they have like so many black owned products. They're like the only company that have like regular people like me and Valencia could create, create a product and Target will partner with us to sell it. And Target is the only company to me that before all this even happened, who's had more compassion for people of color. So um, as far as like the NFL goes, the thing that gets me about the whole bond, the knee thing is that Kaepernick was making a very small, very, be it polite stance on the fact that Black people are unarmed people are being shot and killed. The reality is, is that America has not always been good to all Americans. And that includes Black people and white women. You know, 
you a lot of white women have been trying to get just as much of the same equality as we have the equal pay um job opportunities i mean at one point it was 70 percent of the country that were treated like second class citizens and all kaepernick did was take a knee <laughs> and people just completely made it about disrespecting a flag and and all this stuff. So I felt like what he was saying is that until Americans treat all Americans like Americans, like we're supposed to be treated according to the Constitution, and just by bowing a knee, they made him out to be a villain. And honestly, nobody even got on board until George Floyd died, you know? And even Nike, Nike, they proved it by giving him a commercial. They proved their support. Nike did. So, yeah, it's a lot of companies that are just trying to make sure they're on the right side of history, in my opinion. Yes, I completely agree that there are a lot of companies trying to be on the right side of history. Because if you just look at their past, um, like how you were saying with Target, Target has always been there. There are a lot of products by Black women, Black people in general, women that Target sells, but... I honestly, this is just a theory, but as a Black woman, when I walk into a room full of people, I notice if they're mostly white or if they're mostly Black or, you know, if there is a mixed diversity. But I'm not sure if a lot of these companies walk into their boardroom and be like, where are all the Black people at? Where are all the Hispanic people at? They just (laughs) don't notice that there's people just like them. So I'm not saying that like uh, a lot of white people don't notice the lack of diversity because I've talked to white people in Fairhope and and they're saying like, I wish it was more diversity here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there there are companies where they just think that the only people on this earth are white people because that's the only people that they hire. And then I know a lot of companies like to use it as an excuse that, you know, people of color aren't as educated as white people, but that's not true. And I saw this article and it was saying that you could go to college and have a same degree as a white person and you may not get the job, you know, and especially with social media out here, you can always go and see what someone is and you know judging by their names too like my name isn't a a black name but it is a hispanic name valencia you know (laughs) so and i agree with you valencia i know i just finished my master's like a couple weeks ago but um, i worked for a cell phone company (laughs) and i had a young black female come in the store who was getting a cell phone she had her master's in education and her name was tamika or something like that And when she saw my name, my name tag, she was like, see, if you were applying for for my job, you would get it. And I was like, how do you figure? (laughs) She said, because your name is Winter. No one would know. They would know you not. And my last name is not a traditional Black name. So like, it's even been situations where I was dating somebody who were Black or somebody who was white. And people would, he would say my full name. And then when I get to the house, I get to the function, they're like, oh, you're Winter. (laughs) So that's true. My mom, and my mom even admitted to it. She said when she was pregnant with me, I want to make sure my baby can get a job. (laughs) She even said that. So that's where we're at. You know, people make judgments and biases based on our name before they even get to know us, you know? so And it's sad. And I remember when I was in college, um, since my name is Valencia and I'm black, people think I'm Afro-Latina. So they used to send me like updates on Afro-Latinos, like <laughs> social clubs and all of this stuff. 
So I was just like, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not. It's just, it's, it's funny, but I feel like we, it runs deeper than levels that all of us can actually comprehend, you know? In our book club, we've been watching a lot of um, webinars by Angela Davis and Bell Hooks. And I think it was Angela Davis that said when she was talking about the need to have diversity, she said, I'm not interested necessarily in just diversity. I'm interested in diversity that matters. Mm. And I think what she was really talking about is like diversity for the status quo. Like, are you just hiring black people because you're trying to meet that status quo and look mm-hmm. diverse? Are you hiring black people and people of color in leadership positions that have a voice and say in the company or the institution that can really make change because you're interested in that? You're interested in like real inclusion, you know? Um, I know in my experience professionally, like when it comes to being offered opportunities in the boardroom, if you, we're not given internships. If we're not given experience to be in the boardroom. So it, it starts from like Valencia's age, you know, in order to create leadership in the boardroom, in order to create diversity on the CEO type level, then it's going to take companies taking, say, Valencia under their wing, you know, taking even me when I was her age under my wing, say, hey, they have the qualifications to go further. And that's the systematic racism because they're not even giving us an opportunity to prove that we have what it takes to give them what they need as that diversity, as that true diversity to the business. It starts from when we're young. It's, it's easy for us to say the boardrooms are just white, but if the boardrooms aren't giving us training and experience, then how can we even, like say, even if they decided to hire me as a diversity hire, let's just say I have a master's, I meet the qualifications, I have 20 years of sales experience, And then they have me go into a company who I have no experience with that company. I don't understand what they want. And they want me to represent my demographic. But they've not given me any training. I don't have any experience with that. All the stuff I've done has nothing to do with that company. Then even with my experience, how can I really contribute if they've not even like groomed me? Like they groom white, you know, 20 year olds or 24 year olds. It's a lot of kids that are being groomed. There's a lot of kids who parents say, okay, I'm trying to groom them. I'm trying to prepare them to be in the boardroom. So I hope that I didn't get off topic, but I think that that plays a role. I feel like that too, but I also want to say that people don't realize that when you go to college, you don't have the same experience as everyone. So it doesn't matter like your race or your gender. There are things that happen in college that can prevent you from getting a job as fast as your classmates. And I also feel like companies need to take that into consideration. For instance, I was Black. I was going to Auburn. Auburn is predominantly white, sitting in the middle of nowhere. For me to have an internship, I would have to compete with the other 25,000 students that go to that school Or I would have to drive to Atlanta. So, you know, you're already black. You're competing with all these other white people. Mm -hmm. Should I drive to Atlanta for an internship? Atlanta is two hours away. Can I afford the gas and the Mm -hmm. car details to, to do that internship? Internships don't pay that much. So you have to pay for the transportation, find somewhere to live. There are so many levels to that that just oh you should have done an internship in college like I can do an internship in college not because 
necessarily because Auburn's in the middle of nowhere, but you have family things that prevent you mm-hmm. from having you and you just can't do both. So I feel like I get harassed all the time. Why didn't you do this internship? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? I didn't have time. I was just trying to make sure I passed, you know, and then I also I volunteered before I even went to college. And I still feel like that's that's overlooked. It's just like, what more do you want from me at this point? You know, so I feel like that's why companies aren't being diverse because while Karen can do four <laughs> internships a year because her her parents have money to send her abroad and all of this, you know, like. Tamika probably can't because she's working at Dunkin' Donuts. No, I'm I'm being serious though. I know People you are. To, I get it. I get it. And that's how me and my friends were. Like right. I, we were working. We were, but we couldn't afford to go abroad. We couldn't afford to do the internships. And then even though we graduated with the same degrees, just mm-hmm. because somebody had an internship, they're being overlooked. It's just like we. While some people were learning about the degrees, we were learning about the degrees. And life lessons at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a part of grooming. That's still a part of grooming. And I think they should create programs. If you want diversity, they have to have diversity programs in place for those who are of color to be groomed just like everybody else so they can have the same opportunities. So I 100% agree with you. And, you know, and it's not like I'm not going to say that I didn't have support from my family because they supported me. They were really sweet. They paid for some of my college. Everything was good. But it's just like when you're a black and you're especially a woman, especially in the field that I study, you have to work extra hard. So, you know, I'm over here working hard, but it's still not enough. So then you're just over here sweating and it's like... It's like you're climbing a mountain, but somebody over here has special equipment and you're just given like two sticks. Yeah, I think that we have to talk about race and class and all of these things together because it's really difficult Mm -hmm. to try to pinpoint where one issue is without the intersection of all these other issues. There is a lot of discussion about critiquing capitalism, but even with that discussion, I still feel like there's a lot of confusion as to what that really means. And it kind of leads me to my next question with the Black Lives Matter movement is where exactly is it going next? Like, what is it trying to accomplish specifically? Do you guys kind of have any, (laughs) uh, Clarissa's already rolling her eyes, like, I don't know. Uh, Where is it going? Like, what's next? What is the goal? I I can't even answer that because I don't (laughs) I don't know, honestly. Um, you mean the goal of Black Lives Matter? matter. Yeah, yeah like matter. especially right now with this particular momentum with the movement, like what is it trying to accomplish? Like what is next? I, I honestly, I don't know um, because you get bits and pieces from different things on the news. And um, some people are saying the purpose, um, the initial purpose, like it has gotten off kilter and everyone's got like every Black Lives Movement sanction or whatever, wherever they're at, everyone's on a different page. It's not like when Martin Luther King, when he was marching, they sat down, they had a plan, you know, he had people working on stuff. It was an organized movement. And this could be an organized movement. I just don't know who's organizing it because I mean it's just everywhere and there's stuff going on some people don't riot some people riot and it started off as I would say like homage to George Floyd and then it became a loitering rioting 
like an octopus. It's got all these legs and arms mm-hmm. and you're just like, I, I, I'm going to stand over here. And when you guys do something that I feel like it's in my lane, which I shouldn't, I should get out of my lane, <laughs> but you know, then I'll help. But some of the stuff that you're doing, I can't relate to, or I don't want to go to jail, you know? And so you have to pick and choose your battles. And I feel like, um, I don't even know what their battles are. I just hear it, you know, like dismantling the police, you know, and I'm like, you can't do that without a plan. Like you want to, you want to cause, but there's no effect, you know, come on, get, you know, get it together. We need to think this through. And I don't think it's, I think it's thought through, but it's almost like a day by day. Well, I wonder how much social media now really is the, the, the factor that's really different now than back in the civil rights movement. We have social media and social media is so big and broad and constant but because it's so all over the place it wears people out people can't really focus very easily people are trying to escape it because they're getting overwhelmed by it but then like I don't know I just feel like social media has changed the way that we have movements now and like how we focus and hone in on any one thing but but to me social media is um is the devil (laughs) I agree I honestly like would, if I had money, I would pay the Chinese or the Russians or somebody to just go in and shut it down. <laughs> shut it down. Your FBI like agent is hearing you. <laughs> They're going to tell on you. Clarice, I have to agree with Clarice. I think the social media has hurt us. I think it's hurt everyone because of fake news. If they, I feel like if they shut it down for at least a month, like if you look at COVID, everybody was, oh, I've got to get my kids here, there, blah, blah, blah. We created a crazy chaos. Um, These Mm -hmm. stay-at-home moms, nothing against them. (laughs) You know, running your kids to swim, to ballet, to jazz, to saxophone, to you know, all over the place, but you created this chaos and yep. then COVID came in and it was like, you know what, I'm going to give you time to revamp, sit down, enjoy your family, do a little homeschooling, get to know your family. You know, like I thoroughly enjoyed hanging out with my family up until an extent, but then, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but with social media, you're being bombarded every single day with mm-hmm. something else. So if you shut it down in the instance of a COVID and you could only talk to people, picking up your phone, your mind would have time to decompress. You could actually rationalize true thought. You could actually focus things that you used to do, be able to do with your brain. You can actually do that. And so I feel like if we shut it down just for a a second to regroup Mm -hmm. and just to see how people function, it would be like a drug addict coming off of a drug. You know, you're detoxing and it would be a good thing, but it would be very hurtful for some people, you know, because they're addicted and they don't even realize yeah. they're addicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to agree with Clarice. It is the devil. That's for certain. You I've know? heard some people say, though, that uh, social media is, for the first time, though, a way for people who might not be in mainstream media, might not be in mainstream real news to have their voices heard though. And like that it is actually like a great platform. Um, Specifically, I've heard like feminist activists who might be way more marginalized have a platform for other people to hear their message 
and learn about them, pick up their books and start reading and engaging in these kinds of conversations that mainstream media, mainstream education would exclude them from otherwise. Mm -hmm. So I hear what you're saying because I totally feel you, Clarice. I have like had so many moments trying to promote Fem South where I've just been like, this is effing BS. Like, what are we all? We're all <laughs> swimming in this thing. And we're all like trying to like get ahead and support it and use it the way it's meant to be using. But behind the curtains is a company who's making a ton of money off of all of this. Mm -hmm. And we're just mm -hmm. handing it over. Yep. And, and, we're, and we're struggling and we're feeling all these various emotions from one minute to the next based on what social media is throwing at us demanding our attention constantly like so I hear you it's it's a paradox I feel like mm -hmm. yeah I would say growing up on social media I mean I understand where you're coming from when you say that it's the devil but <laughs> at the end of the day it's just a it's just an app it's just a phone I'm not gonna let this phone or age convince me of anything to be honest so I don't I mean and maybe that's just like how my generation or just like, but I feel like you just have to step back and just realize like, first of all, everything on social media is not real. If I see something that I'm really curious about and I want to know, like, is this real? I will go and compare my notes to what I see on Instagram versus like CNN or some other news outlet. But I, I mean, I guess especially during quarantine, I've just learned, I just, I really can't compare myself to these people on Instagram. This is not real. Not all of it, at least. I just think the issue is, is there are so many people that live on the surface that don't go deeper is the problem with social media. When you are concerned about only like material things or image or what people think about you, those are the people who make social media bad. I think that, yeah, it is the devil, but we make choices on using it in a negative way or a positive way. I've been on social media for 10 years. And I can safely say that you can go back and look at everything I posted and can't none of it be used against me. If I decided I wanted to run for president, you couldn't take anything I've said on social media and deem me unqualified to run for presidency. Because I think that it's common sense to not go on social media and act like a crazy person. That's what I'm saying. You have that ability. Mm -hmm. I have that ability. We have that ability. Yeah. However, there are people that don't you have don't. that ability. And there yeah. are people, for instance, when George Floyd happened, that did not have that ability. And they could have posted a picture about a chicken running away from a squirrel, something so stupid. But then it all of a sudden turned into a race war, you know, on social yeah. And one person took the picture as this and another took it as that. And then they're saying something to each other. And then eventually it spirals down into crazy and it ends up being a race issue or, you know, it opens up things that, that maybe that's truly how you feel. Thank you for letting me know, you know, but it also, it, it hinders things, you know, as you were saying before, you know, some people, they're going to now flip it and try to get you fired from your job because of that. Yeah. So it's one yeah. of those things where, it gets people caught up and caught out there and they don't even realize that they're caught up and caught out there. It's kind of like, you know, I look at people like um, when I was taking um, psychology classes and stuff and you're learning about people who um, try drugs for the first time and they don't realize that initial high that you got, you're never going to experience that again. You're now what they call chasing the dragon. And that's what they're doing. You know, they're just chasing something mm -hmm. and it's like, it's really your own insecurities. You're, you're posting mm -hmm. stuff that's 
not real. People are posting their happy life, but their life really isn't happy. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to compete and no one's living in full reality. Mm -hmm. And and it's, it's a shame, you know, that we've been suckered into, you know, situations like this to where you don't even know you're so caught out there. You don't even know if your life is real or fake and you're living it every day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It is. And um, I was going to say, I don't, I don't know how to explain this, but I've learned over quarantine that everyone has an opinion, but I've learned to realize like, is my opinion necessary to give? Is it going to actually benefit anyone before I give it? And I feel like a lot of people give their opinion which is not even an opinion. It's just negative energy that they're bringing into the situation. What are you doing? Like, why are you talking? That's what I always (laughs) think when somebody gives me their opinion, but it's just really negativity. And I didn't even ask for your opinion. So that's why I feel like social media is. And that's why I don't participate on it. Okay. I think now is a good time to take a quick break. Thank you for sticking with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about white supremacy and education. And what it means when somebody like Bell Hooks talks about self-actualization as a way to heal. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Well, I wanted to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I, I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, there's, I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like, I'm going to have to explain myself. So, so I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the Black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. And then also, I didn't know what feminist meant. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. And welcome back. You're listening to the Fem South podcast. And I am joined with my good friends, Valencia, Clarice, and Winter to continue our conversation about racism in America. On social media, once, once everybody saw the video and the movement started really happening, people were making comments there was an expectation that if you didn't make a comment, that that meant that you were complicit as a white person specifically. It, um, it showed that you were complicit in racism if you did not make a comment. So I saw a lot of my white friends making comments, blacking out their page and showing all of this support. But then we talk about the bandwagon and like mm-hmm. this idea that everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. Like, is this a good thing? Or is this a bad thing? Are people just rushing into this uh, social media frenzy so that they can look good. You know, it's Mm -hmm. kind of a a weird space. I don't really know how to talk about it, but I I think it's a weird space. And as a white woman, I felt like I definitely want to show my solidarity. I definitely want it to be known that I care about this, but I've always been caring about this and I don't want it to look like I'm all of a sudden just caring about this. It was a weird space for me to be in. And I saw like a lot of my friends rushing and to support the bandwagon, which is which is also another good thing, because for the first time, a lot of my friends are actually having conversations about white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts about that. Like, um, 
the conversation now is are revolving around this notion that yes, we do live in a culture that validates and reinforces white supremacy in almost all of our institutions. And, and white people are now just starting to realize that or see it or talk about it and have these conversations and evaluate it in their own lives. Like, how do you guys feel about that? I think that um, as it relates to white supremacy and white privilege, what I want is for my white friends who do care about what's happening to Black people and just to do what they can to utilize their white privilege to do it. That don't mean you have to black out your page. That don't even mean you have to post Black Lives Matter on your page. It just means that you need to actively change your perspective in everyday life so that this is just not a trend. This is something that you decide I'm going to make a difference in my everyday life. That means at work. That means if I see the police stop a black person and they're being treated weirdly, I'm going to stop and watch the police officer. I'm a police the police. We need that kind of support. Just doing it on social media doesn't mean anything if as soon as all this stuff blows over, the same stuff keeps happening. I have literally had about 40 friends personally message me and tell me they, that they have my support and that, that they love me and that if they had any ever said anything to me that was inappropriate or racist or biased, that they want their, my forgiveness. And that, to me, means way more to me than you going on your page and saying Black Lives Matter because you personally said something to me about it. You cared about how I feel about it, you know? So, um. I haven't had too many people just reach out to me and just, you know, say that, oh, if I've said anything offensive, but I I don't know, because I guess my generation, well, I don't know, I guess my situation, I've had people reach out to me because they know I'm in DC and they're like, are you safe? But I don't know what to say about this movement. I don't have anything particular that I would want white people to do. I just want to be treated like a human. I want to be given the same opportunities. I want to feel safe in my neighborhood. I don't want to have to walk around with mail and my ID. So, you know, you know, that you live there. there. Yeah, I want to just feel safe. But I also know that just me being black and a woman, it's like, you know, I can't, I'm not going to be able to get both because I'm black and I'm a woman. You know, you can, you can still get sexually harassed. You can still, (laughs) you know, it's not. So I just don't see like this issue actually being, solved like per se because you just can't control everyone's opinions or just perspective yeah how they interact so I mean I would hope to be treated by the human like a human by the time I you know get 60 or 70 or 40 yeah but that's it's not a guarantee and I mean at this point I feel like when you hit a certain age you just know like how society sees you so it's just like that's been it's been taught up to me like for so long how society sees and you know I don't know how Clarice or Winter you feel but I remember when I graduated college and when it set in like a week I was with my friend and I started crying and I was just like girl do you know that we just beat every stereotype that had been placed on us since we were babies you know, the thing that makes me sad is I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm 40, no children. I'm divorced, but that's that's a stereotype that could apply to anybody. <laughs> and um, and I have my master's now. And um, I remember when I walked across the stage and I got my bachelor's, my family was there. 
and you know, my dad, my dad had died literally um, maybe a year before I graduated from college. Same thing that happened to me. And my dad was a, he was a victim of systematic racism. He was a victim of a dysfunctional household with drugs, alcohol. I mean, his mother was raised up in a hit house, which was the equivalent of a drug house, like a trap house. Yeah, that's the equivalent because it remember when alcohol was illegal. Yeah. So my grandmother was raised up in a hit house and um, she ended up becoming a black teacher in the 50s. She was a black teacher in the 50s, even after being raised up in a hit house, raised up essentially by a drug dealer. And she went on to function. She retired from, you know, she retired from being a teacher. She she broke so many stereotypes while also still being a part of a problem. You know, and then my dad, he died when he was 54. My aunt died when she was 57. And then my uncle died when he was like 59. And they all died from drug addiction, alcohol, delusion, you know. And then here I am, you know, now I have my master's. And if you base it off of just my genes, and we were talking about my mama's side, <laughs> you know, you know, it's so many things we overcome. And yet we're still trying. It's still a glass ceiling. You know, I read an article that black women are the high, we're the highest educated group of people in the world, not black, not white, across the board. And we still don't get the same opportunities and we still get paid even less than white women do. It's, it's, it's just I hope by the time Valencia, my age, she can say different. That's all. I just hope that it just progressively gets better. And, you know, I um, have this quick story, but I realized that you can even be Black and not see the problem. And I was talking Mm -hmm. to one of my friends and she was saying how she has this Black gynecologist in Maryland. And I was just like, whoa, I have never seen a black female <laughs> gynecologist. And I was explaining to her, you know, how the doctors are in Fairhope. And um, she was just like, well, I've just, I've never had to deal with that situation. And I was just like, well, you're privileged, you're blessed. Because as a black woman, it's already hard if you don't have the family backing to go out there and to go to school and have the money and have just like the emotional support to finish a degree Mm. like that. And my friend, bless her heart, but that's, you, you need to realize that yeah, you are blessed and privileged, but that's because you live in a predominantly black area. People in the middle of Alabama, no. Nope. Girl, I no. wish a black gynecologist would move here. I mean, she would be making so much money. I'm talking about like my mama and all her friends. Oh, that that would be they gynecologist. That would be I didn't even know the fact that you even said that I feel ashamed to say that I didn't even really like, wait a minute, what? A black female gynecologist? Um I was watching um, on your, a YouTube video last night and I was telling Lee about it and it was that old show, Phil Donahue. And it was an episode where he had Louis Farrakhan on there. And um, this girl stood up and she was talking and he was basically like telling her, you know, um, basically sit down because he was like, <laughs> he, he told her, he explained to her, like, you're not in a position of power to do anything to mm-hmm. dismantle this uh, white supremacy. He was like, when you're in a position of power, you have to then dismantle it and then put your hand down and pull another person up. 
And that's the problem that we have in society. As Black people, we can get the perfect job, but Mm -hmm. it's very hard for us to put our hand down and reach down and bring up one more Black person. Yeah. Because, and they label us as crabs in a barrel. Yeah. And that's bad to think about stuff like that, but Mm -hmm. it's happened. And we make it hard on ourselves because we won't reach down to bring up that person because we're secretively scared that that person may beat us out of our job. But I look at it as I want to pick you up because if something happened to me, I have trained you to take my spot, to be able to do my job better than me. Mm -hmm. But we're afraid they're going to take our job. If you do your job, I can't take your job. I can actually help you with your job. And Mm -hmm. within the white community, there's so many people that have these positions that could reach down to pull up an African-American child to say, hey, I want to train you in this simple job, this simple task, just to give you a trade or a skill to know how to do something. And I think that's the part that's disheartening because listening to him, he made a lot of sense, you know, Mm -hmm. and he wasn't aggressive and angry or anything like that. But the things that he was saying back to the crowd, it made a lot of sense. Like the one lady, um, she spoke about, you know, she came from some part of Bed-Stuy, New York or something. And she said her biggest fear was the violence that would happen if Black people came into power. And he was like, The fear that you feel because of this violence is actually a deep-rooted guilt that you feel for the way that your ancestors treated us. And Mm -hmm. you're afraid that we're going to in turn assault and attack you the way that you assaulted and attacked our ancestors. But African-Americans didn't have a history of being violent. Violent acts were created against them. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that he was saying, it, it makes sense. And I don't hold that against anybody because that's your fear, you know, but I wouldn't do that, you know, but some of the things he was saying about changing the mindset of people, that's what you have to do. But I can't force you to change that. You know, I can't force you to think of me as a, as a, an equal to you, even Mm -hmm. though I might be, and I may be greater than you, but I Mm -hmm. shouldn't always have to prove myself to you, you know, my self-worth. And that's what I feel like we always have to do, and it will be so hard to change people, but it is nice that people did reach out to you to say, you know, that they're, you know, just to see how you were doing and not to do it on Facebook because that's so impersonal to pick the phone up and to call and to, to talk to me. That's more personal than to shoot me something across Facebook so that everybody can see, oh, this is what you did, you know? Right. It's accolade that you wanted to receive just mm-hmm. for, for caring about me. So I just, I look at like the decolonization is of the, the white supremacy. It's just, it's something that's going to take a while, but if you're in that position to change it, truly change it. Don't just change it, you know, because your Coca-Cola label or whatever your label, you know, you're, you're trying mm-hmm. to make your brand better, you know? When it comes to the colonization and a white supremacy um, issue, it's checking your heart. You know, check your own agenda. Do you have uh, some issues in your heart that's hindering you from being concerned about another human being? It wasn't until like this one guy who's an activist who who's stated that not only 
um, the statues that they've been tearing down that represent oppression. He also talked about the depictions of Jesus being white. And that really kind of struck me because it didn't even dawned on me that we've been dealing with, you know, white, not, and that's not just Jesus in general. A lot of things are depicted as white. I mean, even go back to Egypt, like all of the, you know, all that stuff in Egypt, you know, all the statues and yeah. stuff, they mm-hmm. broke off the noses. They made sure that they did not let us know or anyone know what their ethnicity is. And um, there is, um, you know, kind of conspiracy theories that the reason why is because these statues are depicted as Black people, you know, Black features, rounded noses, full lips, um, high cheekbones. And I think that in America, or just in the world in general, you know, we've all been faced with all these things that represent white and white is better. I mean, everything Black has all been, always been aligned with negative. That's a part of systematic racism and everything white has been made to be positive. White as light, wash me white as snow, white Jesus, um, Lily White oh, man. White Mary. Really, you know, white, white Mary, you know, white Fairhope, you know, the just white washing in movies back when they would have Native Americans depicted by white people or Hispanics depicted by white people. Or, and it was funny, I was talking to someone about that how I actually don't, it didn't bother me like when Robert Downey Jr. depicted a Black character in Tropical Thunder. And the reason why it didn't bother me is because he was white who went under some makeup to be Black for a film that didn't mean anything to anybody. Like he wasn't like pretending to be Martin Luther King. He wasn't pretending to be Malcolm X. He was just a white guy who... (laughs) was portraying a black character in a silly stupid movie so to me I thought it was hilarious I think it would have been more offensive if it would have been a black character like I said Martin Luther King um Malcolm X why they wouldn't use a black actor for that that's that's where I see the difference so some people may not agree with me and think that Robert Downey Jr. shouldn't have portrayed a black person I actually thought it was freaking freaking hilarious but everybody's different you know um, going off of that movie, I was going to say the white chicks by the Wayne's <laughs> brothers when they dressed up as white women. It's a double standard. It's a double standard. So I agree with you. And they were hilarious, but it, it definitely wasn't right. But nobody ever like gave them crap about white face. At, and it wasn't yeah. like they had black face pretending to be like a famous white woman that made a difference in the world. Okay, yeah, but it was just funny, just on Tropical Thunder. I thought it was freaking hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah. but I think that, and that's where we have to have some humor in this and not take things so seriously where we can't have a little bit of fun because there is a curiosity about Black and white people. They're curious about whites, whites are curious about us. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's healthy. And when it comes to white supremacy, when people say they don't see color, that's, excuse my language, that's BS. You do see color. You have to respect that person's color and their culture. You can't say you don't see it. That's absurd. Um, When it comes down to um, beauty and the way that we as um, African-Americans view ourselves, I kind of feel like because we've seen in the movies and every image that we've ever had has Mm -hmm. been white. Um, Mm -hmm. I can remember as a young person, the first time 
I remember seeing two African-Americans um, on screen actually having a love scene. I was like, oh my God, this is awkward. You know, because I was <laughs> so used to seeing it being a white woman and a white man, you know, having a, a romantic love scene. And so I was like, oh, this is a lot. Like it, it just took me to another level, but I shouldn't feel like that. Black women need to be loved just like a white woman needs to be loved like that on the screen, you know, so that right. it allows me to see that that is okay. But that's yeah. one of those things that society has created to make it okay for white, but it it suppresses the black image of ourselves to see ourselves on the screen um, or in it depicted in pretty much anything, you know, whether it's pictures um, in magazines, you know, we can sell beautiful dresses, you know, we have beautiful girls now doing it, but it's limited. You know, when you look at a magazine cover, if you were to actually go in to count how many African-American people you see in that magazine, you'll probably see one or two, if not any. And mm-hmm. so it it makes kids not really um, see who they can possibly be. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't see a replication of yourself, then you don't know that you can be that person. And when it comes to education, that's where I think we fall short because we were taken from our heritage, our roots, from everything that we could have known about ourselves. And yep. we know nothing about ourselves. And what was created was due to a white environment that brought us here, that taught us what they wanted to teach us. And we were suppressed for so long that when we did get the opportunity to actually come out and be who we are or who we thought we wanted to be, um, we didn't know who we were. So we went right. based on what we were told, how we were supposed to act. And, and that's why we are confused and kind of finding who we are as a people. And we all have different views on who we are because we, we were told that Jesus was white, that the angels mm-hmm. are white, that everybody mm-hmm. is white. And mm-hmm. we're like, but what about us? Nobody looks like us, you know? Right. So we're lost, you know? And, and it, it's going to take us a minute to find ourselves. But if history could be rewritten, then we could see that there are famous African-Americans. I mean, just like, um, what's the movie? Um, the ladies from NASA. Oh my gosh. I'm drawn a blank. Hidden figures. Hidden figures. Yes, hidden figures. Yeah. Like, Which was amazing. You know, oh, that movie was so amazing. That's something where yeah. had that movie not come out, a lot of us wouldn't have even known about that. And, yeah. and it's stuff like that. If you incorporate that into history, put mm-hmm. Blacks and white into history, and then we can see that we can be more, you know, right. because when my grandparents were young, they actually knew Martin Luther King. These people were there, you know, mm-hmm. they could mm-hmm. see them when mm-hmm. my great grandmother, you know, Frederick Douglass, you know, these people were during the era. So it was verbally taught to them. And so it was basically verbalized down through the generations, but now we've forgotten about those people because they're not taught anymore. We've kind of, it's been whitewashed once again. And so we, we kind of lose a part of ourselves. And I think that's why we don't know who we are. Well, you know, I have to say that um, in the last, say, 10 years, oh, maybe not 10 years, five years, maybe, I've noticed a shift in like, uh, movies and stuff, um, How to Get Away with Murder, Scandal, um, a whole bunch of new pilots where they have darker complected women yes. um, having relationships, interracial relationships 
relationships, which I love. I think that's amazing. Um, but I love seeing darker complexed women. And also I've noticed if you look at like commercials and artwork, you see a lot of black women in their natural hair. And I just love seeing that depiction. And the first time I saw black people kissing <laughs> on TV, I never saw white people kissing the same again. <laughs> it just did not do anything for me. The first time I saw a black woman and a black man kiss on TV, I was like, it blew my mind. So you're right. It's like, I didn't even realize I was missing it until the first time I saw it. It was nothing sexier than seeing that. And even with the way it's progressed. And I was, I lived in LA about, I want to say 2012, 2013. I was there working. And the only reason why I got any work is because I had shaved my head. But the women they wanted, the black women they wanted, they wanted darker complected women. I was too light. And the reason why is because I was ethnically ambiguous. They could say I was anything if they put mm-hmm. the right wig on me. But it's hard to decipher, you know. And and so it was a lot of times I didn't get jobs because I was competing with a darker complexed woman, which was fine. I didn't have a problem with it. I love my dark complexed sisters. But I noticed there has been a shift. And if y'all look at TV, black women are killing it in TV. We got so many leading black women in shows now where it's a white guy and a black woman that's leading it. You know, I have to say that Hollywood has kind of come with it in that regard. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What one thing that really frustrated me and the reason why I moved from the area that we live in Fairhope and Daphne area is because I couldn't find my hair care products. And I feel like people don't realize like how excluded you feel when you walk into a store and people that don't have curly hair that have straight hair or have a certain type of texture of hair have a aisle and a half or two aisles of hair care products (laughs) yeah but you then you walk to your little section I mean here it's a little bit better because instead of like 25 percent of an aisle is 50 percent but still it's just like when the coronavirus hit I couldn't go to the hair care store. So I had to just take what CVS had. So I just, honestly, I I feel like that really needs to change. Like I should be able to go to any store and find some shampoo for my type of hair. I wanted to circle a little bit back to education for a minute because, you know, I'm an educator. I teach English literature and I think English literature is a place where it really matters what we're teaching our students because it's the voice that gets represented But I also am not seeing in my own department or even in my kids' school, like I'm not seeing a dialogue about anything that's going on in our educational departments right now or any kind of like, hey, we're just letting you know that we're going to make sure that we train all of our teachers about what it means to be diverse in the classroom and how to create diverse curriculum. I feel like this is the time and these are the places where we really need to be seeing people saying stuff like this. I don't know, Clarice, if you're seeing this from your school, but like, I do think it's a problem. Like I make a conscious choice to include people of color in my curriculum, but I have no idea if my colleague next door is doing this or not, because we don't really have a discussion about it. There's not like a conversation about white supremacy and diversity. Um, I kind of look at it like when it gets to the college level, that's when they kind of have your African-American studies, or you may incorporate it, you know, if it's uh, literature, you may incorporate it with a, a book or something that you may have in three. It's more of a choice at that point, because you're picking and choosing your classes and what's actually available there on campus. Whereas when it comes to just like high school down through grammar school, that is something like a lot of the curriculum is state-based. And so 
it has to start at like uh, in Montgomery, you know, it has to start at the state level for them to say, okay, we've kind of shot away for this number of years from African-American history or what have you. So we need to bring it back and put it back in, into our lesson plan or something. Because at, what was it? Fairhope Elementary School out behind the satellite courthouse, they simply had the, the Black History Program in February and they whitewashed it down with Joe Kane. They did Mardi Gras the same time. So I'm like, why would you do that? And then I get angry because I'm like, why would the African-American parents allow that to happen? You know, but it's where, once again, we have just kind of let things go. We -hmm. accept it. And that's what happens. And eventually things just disappear because we don't stand up for our kids to know better. And so I feel like if the parents stood their ground. And once again, if we all chimed in, and this is the moment where we could use this to catapult us forward, this movement to make the people at Montgomery, whoever's doing these lesson plans, to alter and change that. It can make the um, Board of Education, Baldwin County Board of Education, actually say, okay, we're not going to incorporate Joe Kane with our African American history program because that is disrespectful, you know, because. Joe Kane Day is a racist. I yeah, mean, Mardi Gras is a very, has a long history of racism and yeah. still continues today. And so that's one of those things. It's like you're you're a making long history it okay. of a lot of bad stuff. Yeah, and yeah. so mm-hmm. that that part of it, I'm just I'm like, and I'm the Black History Month as our designated month to talk about Black history <laughs> has to change. <laughs> First of all, it's always just Martin Luther King. Maybe you throw in Rosa Parks. You forget all the people and all the women who are a part of the movement. I mean, how many people really talk about the radical uh, liberation movement when they talk about the civil rights movement? I mean, you have to kind of seek that out and you shouldn't have to seek that out. Uh, I was actually kind of really surprised that when I got my bachelor's, I learned more about black history then than I learned in my whole, like whole, like all of my grade school. And the sad thing is not everybody goes to college. So we miss a lot by not um, getting that extra education because American history is actually does a really good job of giving us a whole bunch of information about black history. Although in order to get into the nitty gritty, you do have to kind of pick a major that kind of exposes a lot of the unfairness of a lot of amendments made to hinder Black people or people of color to have access to a lot of benefits that white people were given. Um, I learned a lot about that in my master's, which is just, again, sad because I wouldn't have never known if I didn't further my education, you but know, that, so. I, I feel like that's one of another thing where... I'll say it again, the um, the black, the Bible that was created that's um, up in D.C. at the Bible Museum, that Bible was, it only consisted of like 190 pages, and it was to suppress the learning, mm-hmm. the revolt, the possibility of a mm-hmm. revolt of the African-American society, and yep. so now, if I dilute history so that you don't exactly know what your people did or how they actually rebelled against, you know, the system to try to make a better path for you, then it's the same thing. It's a suppression of information and the education system, the, that, that particular Bible did it to suppress the slaves and the Mm -hmm. education system is doing that to suppress the youth. And the only way you can find it is like you said, once you went to college, but how many of our kids are actually going to college to get to that point of even being able to take that class? Right. 
Yeah. And I would just add to that. The same applies for women's history too. Like, and Mm -hmm. I've said this many times Mm -hmm. in the podcast, like you have to seek out even women's history and women. Mm -hmm. So you, this is a place race and gender intersect Mm -hmm. because we have to seek out this information. And both of you said you have to go to college in order to get it. And then even when you go to college, like I'm right now teaching uh, just a general English 101 class and an English lit class. Everybody has to take my class. So if I choose not to focus on any black authors Mm -hmm. or any authors of color, nobody's going to say anything to me about it. And I could have a total white representation of literature, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people do. It's really important because unless somebody does seek out you know, an African-American literature class or an African-American history class or a feminist theory class, there maybe never will be exposed to Angela Davis or Bell Hooks or Cornel West or so many really mm-hmm. radical thinkers and writers. And I think like the radical movement is so marginalized right now um, mm-hmm. that it's it's hard to even find people who even really understand or have read any of that stuff, because it's certainly not going to happen, even in mainstream college. I think Hidden Figures is a perfect example of of them being Black and them being women, because nobody wanted to admit that women were that intelligent, and not only were they intelligent, but they were Black too. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was also hidden from us because they were women. I think that if they would have been Black men, it's probably a little more likely that we would have found out about them because I think that the woman aspect has always been considered to be less intelligent, to be less apt to know how to manage a situation because we're women, you know, because we get pregnant, we should get paid less because I need to take six months off to take care of my kid. Like, I don't understand why all of that, but that's a whole nother thing, so... But what about self-actualization? Give me some examples of what that means, because I'm I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around what that means. Tell me what that means. Well, that's a phrase that I've heard said by many Black feminist writers. Again, this is kind of like a phrase that I hear probably more from like the radical liberation movements among women and feminists. The self-actualization is the idea that you can work against colonization. It's a decolonizing idea that the more that you get to know yourself outside of the lenses of all these cultural forces, especially if the cultural force is white supremacy and it's forcing assimilation. So you see like this phrase being said during like early black liberation movements and especially um, with Angela Davis, somebody like that, who is not just Mm -hmm. saying that we need equality, but that we need to actually celebrate and love blackness and love mm-hmm. ourselves in Blackness. And that whole idea is, um, is one that's working against the grain, against the system, against white supremacy and against white culture, but also white history. Mm-hmm. And it, it happens on so many different levels, but the ultimate goal is that you will love yourself and know yourself outside of all of those systems. It's, and I mean, Bell Hooks talks about self-actualization and critical thinking as healing. It's a way to deal with epigenetic trauma. It's a way to deal with self-hate. It's a way to deal mm-hmm. with like... I, I'll give an example. Yeah, so, thank you. <clears throat> Oprah Winfrey, um, when she first came out, she used to talk about like, well, she started talking about her mother and how, you know, her mom left her to stay with her grandmother and they had nothing in common. And then once she became famous, her mother, um, that's when her mother really wanted to get to know her and so she kind of had a negative connotation like towards her mother. And that, well, that's what I took. And so um, mm-hmm. 
she said that over the years, you know, they kind of just dealt with each other. Well, she kind of just dealt with her mother because, you know, she wasn't really, I guess, sure about her mother's true self as far as them having a relationship. And so um, it wasn't until her mother was about to pass, well, about to die, like she got sick. And um, she was talking to the pastor, uh, T.D. Jakes. He basically was trying to help her work through what she was going through. And she said it wasn't until talking to him that she realized that all she was seeking was love. And once she realized that he he gave her this expression, he was like, some people are voluminous and they have, um, he was like, you're like a, a person who, who has 10 gallons of love, but your mom is a pint person. She only has a mm. pint. You want mm. this pint person to give you 10 gallons of love. And he was like, and that's just not possible coming from a pint. She's giving mm-hmm. you everything she has, but you mm-hmm. want more. And so she said when she had to go within herself to realize, to, to utilize that self-actualization, to actually realize what he was saying. And she said when she looked back, it wasn't that her mom gave her away. It wasn't all this stuff that society or story she had heard and she kind of twerked her vision of her mother into that picture. Mm -hmm. It was that when her mom had her, she was young. She didn't know what to do. You know, the situation Mm -hmm. that she was in is what caused her to have to make the life choices she did. So once she Mm -hmm. actually realized that, she was able to love her mother, but she had run out of time. Mm -hmm. And so all she could do was fly back to be by her mother's side until she died. And so she was like, she kind of feels bad for that because she wasted so much time, you know, just being mad. So, and we all have to self-reflect because a lot of us just don't do that. You know, that's real. Yeah. Yeah. Every situation requires you to self-reflect on something good, bad, or indifferent. And it's, it's up to you to make that, that step to be the bigger person. Yeah. I can actually relate to that. Me and my mom, you know, I've, been back home since 2013 and um, we've been living together and taking my own place well we had kept getting into these arguments just all these crazy arguments and I couldn't understand why because I didn't think I was doing anything wrong and then finally she admitted to me that she just she says I don't know why I'm so determined to make you like me when I love who you are and I respect who you are and I'm sorry for that And y'all, when she told me that, y'all, a weight was lifted because I had been trying, you know, I have really had been trying. And, you know, I guess we just don't realize how what our mothers think of us, what it matters, what what that means to us. And my mom loves me. She, me and her have a great relationship. It's just in every relationship, there is that aspect of she wanting to be wanting me to be me but also be like her and you can't do that that's not fair (laughs) you know and what I've done is just been patient with her you know I've just a lot of times she'll get mad at me and I don't get mad back a lot of times she'll go off on me and I don't go off back a lot of times you know it'll be like that 10th time I'll be done okay mama all right (laughs) but that's the key and I agree I think that you know when it comes to people we love we have to accept them for who they are and try to love them, even if they don't love us the way we think they should love us. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because there's always reasons why they're who they are. You know, we may not even know, you yeah. know, the, the depth of that, you know. Yeah. I was going to say that 
I have been, well, I reflect every day. I reflect in the morning and I reflect at night. I reflect at the end of the week and I reflect at the end of the month. And I know that that sounds like a lot, but I, I have to, I keep a whole book of my feelings and I just write them down every single day. But that's just, as is how I have to live. But um, self-actualization has um, been coming up a lot in my reflections and just the stuff that I've been reading and just interacting with. So I, I took the time to like just dig more into it. And um, I found a definition, the realization or fulfillment of one's talents and potential, um, especially considered as a drive or a need and present in everyone. So I guess it's just basically just getting to know yourself and to take the time out to understand other people's actions. I know with me and my mom lately, and especially like since quarantine, she would do stuff or I I would do stuff that has happened in the past or even happens in the present. And we've been able to have a, a successful dialogue, like I'll ask her questions. And even in my little notebooks, if there's something I want to know about life or just some of the mistakes that she's made or just in general, why things are the way that they are in our family, I'll just form a question to ask her. And I mean, some of the questions are like very heavy. And some of the questions I know, like it takes her by surprise, but I always make sure that it's never offensive or disrespectful. For me... It's just um, accepting myself. And I think for a long time, I tried to assimilate, you know, when it came to how I carried myself, how I presented myself professionally. And honestly, in the last, like, say, since 2016, I've been natural. Uh, I've not gotten any negative, negative feedback about me being natural, shaving my head. (laughs) Can't get no more ethnic than the Black girl with a shaved head. (laughs) So uh, I can safely say I've been really blessed that, Uh, I accepted myself regardless to if anybody else thought it was cool or not. But for so long, I tried to depict some type of image. And it wasn't until I loved every aspect of myself. My hair was a huge thing. And for women, that's a big thing. All women across the board. So for me, self-actualization came to fruition when I went natural. So, yeah. Um, I, I think for me, self-actualization, I, I over-theorized it when you asked me about it, and I can see that I did now. I live in theory. You guys can probably see. I read so much of, like, constantly in theory. It's hard for me to take, like, all of this and apply it to my real life. But I think it's a part of figuring out that what I'm doing is something that I value. And even though we were talking about our parents, like, even though my parents perhaps don't value what I'm doing and I'm 45, like I shouldn't even need that. But when the people who you care about in your life don't necessarily value what you do in the world, it's hard. So a part of self-actualization, I think, is just coming to terms with, uh, you know, I'm okay with what I'm doing and what I'm doing has value and my life has value and I can be me and that's okay. Now I can say that all day long, but it's very difficult to be me around people. So And I don't know if that has also to do with being just introverted and shy and all that other stuff. But I think that it's it's just an ongoing process. It's a part of like why I wanted to do this book club and why I think it's so important and why I love female um, community and sisterhood is because it's a place where you, I think we can be ourselves, you know, in a different way that maybe the world won't allow us to be necessarily like we have to constantly fight against the world to be ourselves. I read this well, it was an audiobook. I like technically don't read books, but I, <laughs> I love I love Audible. So me and you were there. I, re- I listen to yes, I love them. 
So I was listening to this book by um, a woman from the Great Britain area, and it her her social media name is Slum Flower, and she started the um, Saggy Boobs Matter movement. So, uh, yes. <laughs> I but love her, it. her book, I'm gonna see if I can find it and send it to you all on Audible. But it was basically saying how everyone needs to live alone. So you can get to know yourself on a level that, you know, no one will ever know you because you can never truly be yourself mm-hmm. um, and, and learn who you are if you're all you don't have any alone time. So um, I just I always look at that. But it, it's called What a Time to Be Alone. I send it to you. So this has been really great talking with you all. And uh, we could probably talk all day long about these topics. But thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate all of you so much. Oh, we appreciate you too, Lee. (laughs) Because for you to be an introvert and to deal with all us extroverts, hey, kudos, especially this extrovert. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to say thank you for for allowing me to be in in a second um, podcast. And I just it's a good time to vent and just to see different perspectives and stuff. And I, I just greatly appreciate it. And I want to say I'm grateful too. I know that I'm young and, you know, I'm not as wise as you all, but I do like that. I can, that you all listen to me, you know, to be honest, like living in a world, being young, a woman in black, nobody really actually sits down and listens to the words that are coming out of my mouth. They may listen to the sound of my voice, but the actual words, not a lot of people do that. And it doesn't matter like the race. I just feel like maybe it's just the energy that I give off, but a lot of people don't listen. So thank you for listening to me talk. Well, I'm going to affirm well, see, you. I think you're super you smart. Very wise. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I think you are wise. Wisdom has nothing to do with age. Please believe. I know a lot of 40-year-old women and I be wanting because I'm like, dude, are you serious? Come on. No, age has nothing to do with wisdom. So I think you're very wise and you're going to just yeah. continue to get wiser. And I also have to say one more thing. I love how we respected all of each other. You know, we respected each other. We've even pulled from what one person may have said and kind of like piggybacked on it and gave our perspective. And in a real conversation, in a real dialogue, this is the only way communication is going to work, you know? And I'm just very fortunate that I've been able to interact with, you know, three other people who can have a conversation and have dialogue and there not be any tension or negativity. I mean, I can't wait to talk to you ladies again off the podcast. So that's why I love this so much. So that's all. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Fem South is a podcast and book club community produced in the deep South. We are dedicated to educating, supporting and empowering women through feminist theory and community. We are intersectional, We are inclusive, and we believe there is no one way to be a feminist. Feminism is an ongoing journey of self-discovery and activism. Our book club is an ongoing exchange between theory and embodiment, and we are simply here to hold space for this collective journey. If you want to get involved with FemSouth, you can go to our website at femsouth.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you would like to be a part of our book club, you can ask to join our private Facebook book club group where we read and discuss books and authors and various other things online. If you're local, you can find our events on our Facebook book club group and come out and join us.
You can also follow us on Instagram and listen to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. We'd really appreciate it if you would give us some feedback and a rating so that we can know what you, dear listeners, are thinking. If you feel motivated to support us, you can head over to our Patreon account, Patreon slash FemSouth, where you can select your monetary gift. So until next time, you've been listening to FemSouth. Thank you.